Thanks for checking out the Community Recap Podcast, where there's no cap and all truth. As we discuss various aspects of the Christian life and look back to our past Sunday sermons to discuss what we can learn from them. Let's tune into this week's episode of the Community Recap Podcast. You should have got a handout when, when you came in. If, if not, um, I think there's some that uh, may be on the back table there. Um, grab one of those. You'll, you'll need that. Um, we won't have the text on the screen, and so this will be a great way for you to follow along uh, as we walk through these various texts together. Uh, tonight, the, the question that uh, has been asked, the, the initial question was, uh, what does it mean once saved, always saved? Um, that is a, a phrase or a terminology that if you've been in the Southern Baptist world for any length of time, you've probably heard that statement. You've probably heard that saying, once saved, always saved. Uh, some individuals will add the caveat, uh, if saved, once saved, always saved, if saved. I think that is an important uh, caveat to add to that, to that phrase. Uh, but there are other um, uh, phrases that are used when dealing with this topic. So we talk about the assurance of the believer. Uh, we talk about eternal security of the believer, the perseverance of the saints. All of those are... Uh, different phrases that are typically used to talk about uh, the position uh, of an individual that has placed their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ. And so I I think it'd be helpful for us tonight to define some terms before we uh, look at various passages of Scripture and what the Bible has to say about where we are and and what it means to be positionally uh, justified or, or positionally uh, in, in Christ Jesus, um, what, what that means as far as our positional holiness. And so uh, really the question can be boiled down to this, can you lose your salvation? Is there something that you can do after you have placed your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ to where you lose your salvation? So can it be said, does the Bible teach that an individual that, that whether here in a church service or at home, uh, wherever the case may be, they pray to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of their life, but yet they fall so far away from, from God by their life that they lose their salvation? Is that, is that something that the Bible speaks of? And so um, I think that is a very important question to, to answer uh, because uh, it really does affect the way that you live out your faith. It, it really does affect the way that you live out your life. Um, uh, when we talk about assurance here in a moment, we'll, we'll see the, the profound impact that, that it has Uh, on individuals that have that assurance of their salvation. So um, I don't want to insult your intelligence uh, by just reading through this, uh, but I do think in the defining of the terms, it's good for for us to to, um, look at this together. Uh, This definition is something that I have pulled from the Holman Illustrated Bible Dictionary. Uh, you will be able to tell very clearly by the punctuation and the lack of grammatical errors or uh, uh, misspellings that I did not type. 
this first part about the security of the believer, okay? Uh, if you've read any of my emails and you've seen my typos, you will know that this is very well punctually and grammatically put together, so I'm going to tell on myself right away. Uh, these defining of terms other than assurance of the believer, uh, th- this is uh, me uh, taking from uh, the Holman Illustrated Bible Dictionary. So it says the, the security of the believer. When we talk about the security of the believer, it is the teaching that God protects believers for the completion of their salvation. Um, so when we talk about the security of the believer, it's the reality that your salvation is secure through the duration of your life. Contemporary Christianity needs to deal forthrightly with the universal human problem of insecurity. The natural gulf between the invisible, infinite God and finite, fallible humanity makes the quest for assurance and security a very significant theological issue. Slogans such as once saved, always saved, and eternal security often easily gain a reverential status normally reserved only for biblical texts and become symbols of evangelical orthodoxy. Indeed, it comes as a shock to some when they discover that their symbols are not actually biblical terms. So you're not going to find once saved, always saved in the Bible. You're not going to have a verse of scripture that we can point to that says that you have eternal security. Those two words are not combined together in a verse of scripture. You're not going to find that, that phraseology, but neither do you find the word trinity. All right, but we can glean from the biblical uh, text uh, as a whole that there is such a thing as a trinity. That is a biblically accurate understanding of God. The Bible does teach that salvation does not depend merely upon human effort. God is the author of salvation. God justifies or treats as acceptable sinners who receive Christ in faith. The great message of the Reformation says no one can earn assurance or security with God. Assurance of salvation is God's gift. Security does not come by absolutions, church attendance, good works, reciting scripture, or performances of penance. God, who has begun the work of salvation in Christians, also provides the necessary assurance to bring his work to its completion in the day of Christ. God in Christ protects and keeps Christians, just as Jesus took seriously the task of preserving the disciples while he was on earth, we do not possess the strength to secure ourselves. Uh, So one of the important aspects of tonight is when you talk about salvation, uh, you got to begin with how is an individual saved in the first place? Uh, Is it by works or is it sheerly by faith? Uh, Is it by the merciful, gracious hand of God Or is there something in us that we do that catches God's eye to say, oh, well, you you are deserving of, of Jesus dying on the cross for you. And so it's good for us to understand the foundational basis of our salvation to begin with. It's not our good works. It's not what we do. It's what Jesus has done. Now, I would put forth to you that faith is not a work. There are some, soteriologically speaking, that would lean to a side that would say uh, uh, faith, if it is uh, an individual expressing faith, uh, then that would equate to a work as opposed to God making them, if you will, express faith. And so uh, I do not attribute faith to a work. 
we are saved by faith. It is our response to the, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, and our repentance of our sin and our placing our faith in Jesus that saves us. So the biblical view of security, however, is probably best epitomized in the Christian doctrine of perseverance. Christians must realize that their security does not lie in a fairy tale approach to life where once a person becomes a Christian, everything is a bed of roses forever and ever. Such a view fails to take seriously the traumas of human life. In other words, the idea that sometimes it gets propagated of the health and wealth, prosperity gospel, that you place your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ. And if you do things right, it's usually up to you. So it's not up to you to get saved, but it's up to you at the point of that to exercise enough faith. Well, then you'll get showered with all kinds of gifts and uh, your life will be free and devoid of struggle and pain. And you'll, you'll get all of these riches, both physically and monetarily. But the biblical view of assurance or security is rooted in the conviction that when Jesus departed from the disciples, the Lord did not orphan them or leave them without support. He promised Christians that he would come to them and would provide them with a companion, the Holy Spirit, who would not only be at their side, but would be within them as much a part of them as their very breath. The Spirit would be their sense of peace and security, their witness concerning Jesus, their attorney with the world, and their guide or teacher into all truth. Along with great promises of assurance, the Bible contains strong warnings that call Christians to consistent living, even as they have yielded to temptations and sin and capitulated to the hostile forces of evil. These, are, uh, these and many other warnings are not merely phantom warnings unrelated to Christian life. They are meant to be taken with great seriousness. They are no more a game with God than was the death of Christ. In other words, uh, we, there, there are warnings that are given in, in Scripture, and we're going to look at these. Um, we're going to look at some of these. We don't have time to look at all of them. Uh, that seem on the surface level, removed from the context, uh, and I'll play my hand a little bit already of where I'm leaning, uh, that um, would seem on the surface that you could lose your, that you could lose your salvation. Uh, I think most of the times, if we properly exegete the, the text and, and look at the context that they find themselves in, uh, that they'll, those typically fall in one of three categories, and we'll look at those three categories uh, here in a little bit as we work our way there. I'll let you finish that just for time purposes, but let me just say that there's a difference between security of the believer and assurance of the believer. Um, assurance of the believer is the term that is closely related to the security of believer. However, assurance of salvation is the subjective side of the issue. In other words, how you can personally know that you yourself are saved. And eternal security is the objective side that one can determine from Scripture or whether or not the Bible teaches that believers cannot lose their salvation. So in other words... Where assurance deals with a feeling or sense or experience that one is saved, security relates to the ultimate fact about the matter. In, in other words, there are individuals that can come to a conclusion biblically that those that have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ are saved and they cannot lose their salvation, but still struggle with whether or not they're one of them. Am I, I, I get that you can't lose your salvation, but... Do I even have salvation? 
have I, have I done what it, what it takes to truly be saved? So there is a difference between eternal security and assurance of the, of the believer. Uh, there, there are some individuals that would say, yeah, I don't think you could lose your salvation, but yet wrestle each and every day whether or not they're going to heaven. I don't know if I'm going to heaven. Both of these are extremely important. If you can lose your salvation, uh, think about the anxiety and think about the worry that uh, that will produce in your life. Every time you sin, was that, was that, did I lose it now? Do I have, what do I got to do? I got to, I got to place my faith back in Jesus Christ. I, I, I've got to get saved again. And you, you, you go back and forth time and time again. Am I in? Am I not in? Am I saved? Am I not saved? Am I separated from God? Am I held in his righteous right hand? You see the the turmoil that that can produce in the life of somebody? But that assurance of salvation to know that that I am held in the righteous right hand of God. Not that he just holds believers, but I'm one of the ones. It's important for us to know, is there a way for us to understand emphatically that we are saved? I'll try to answer both of those questions this evening. Um, You can look at perseverance as we look at the definition of of that term. Um, A lot of individuals will say the fruit that you are a believer is that you'll persevere to the end. That that is the sole understanding that, listen, if as long as you, you make it from the point you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ all the way to the time that you died and you didn't, you didn't fall away from the Lord to any degree, uh, you didn't turn your back on God to any degree, then, then you make it. The problem with that is where's the assurance in that? How do you know you won't? Well, I got assurance of salvation. Really? Because... Until you die, how do you know? So where's the assurance in that? How do you know five years from now a great tragedy is not going to happen into your life? How do you know tomorrow uh, your family member is not going to go to work and some crazed individual is going to come and shoot them and that you're going to be able to respond just perfectly in a godlike way and you're going to stay committed to the Lord to a degree of holiness that matches up to what some individuals would say is perseverance? So individuals that would cling to this idea of perseverance uh, of, of believers, um, I just don't see the, ins- the assurance that you can have uh, each and every day uh, that, that you're going to be one of the ones that persevere. I, I think that, that is a, a, a pretty assumptuous uh, ideology on, on your part that you, you'll, there will be nothing in your life that will cause you to ever turn, turn away from the Lord or that you won't live uh, in a way that you had lived previously. Now, we'll, we'll look at that because I think that, that's, a two-sided, that's a two-sided coin uh, on that when we talk about perseverance. But I think really the, the major terms that we need to really define tonight as we jump into this is the difference between justification, sanctification, and glorification. Justification is positional holiness. It's positional holiness. When you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you become the righteousness of Christ. So we talk in terms of I'm saved, I'm being saved, and I will be saved. When you talk about salvation, you're, you're, you're talking about three aspects of salvation. 
The moment I place my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, I'm justified. It's just as if I had never sinned is how I've heard it spoken. I'm justified. I'm forgiven of my sins. I am now positionally holy. I am situated with Christ. I am in Christ. Just as the family of Noah was inside the ark, they were positionally situated inside the ark. They are saved. They are secure. Justification is being saved from the penalty of sin. I'm saved from the penalty of sin. The wrath of God is removed off of my life the moment I place my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I'm no longer a child of wrath. I'm a child of God. I'm adopted into the forever family of God Almighty. It is a mistaken assumption of individuals say because we bear the image of God, that means we're children of God. Just because you bear the image of God and are made in, in, in God's image does not mean that you are a child of God. It means you're one of God's creations. But that creation has been marred by sin, and therefore you are separated from a perfect and a holy God, and it says that you are a child of wrath. But the moment you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you're taken out of darkness, you're taken out of death, you're brought into life, and you are adopted into the forever family of God, and you are now a child of God positional holiness. Anybody sin today? Anybody sin today? Okay, those of you that didn't raise your hand, although it was just an exercise, uh, you just lied, and so you sinned today. You made it all the way to 653, uh, but we sin, right? Now, hold on. I thought I was holy. I thought I'm set apart. I thought I was holy. Well, positionally, in Christ Jesus, that's how God sees his children. Positionally, we are holy. However, there's another aspect of salvation that's called sanctification. That's progressive holiness. Be conformed. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ, right? All things work for the good of those that love God and are called according to his purpose so that we be conformed into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Work out your salvation, right? These are verses of text that we see about sanctification. There's progressive holiness where we look more and more like Jesus each and every day. That, that is the goal, right? Uh, that tomorrow I would look more like Jesus than I did today, and today hopefully I look more like Jesus than I did yesterday. Now, that doesn't always work, does it? Some days I look more like the old Adam before Christ than I look like the Adam after Christ. And if we're all being real and honest in here, sometimes we look more like the old us than we do the new us. There's progressive holiness, and that's the process of sanctification, that the things of the flesh are being removed, the the. the, the the things of the world are being chiseled away from us, and we are being conformed into the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then there's glorification, that great getting up morning, amen? That glorification, where that's perfect holiness. So sanctification is progressive holiness where we're saved from the power of sin. So the, the more and more we're sanctified, the less and less the power of sin has hold over our life. The penalty of sin has been removed, but the power of sin is still at work in individuals' lives at times. 
We, we still uh, urge and, 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 and feed into the, to the flesh, and we long for those fleshly things. Now, glorification, that's perfect holiness. Uh, that, that's when we enter into, into heaven. And again, I've, I've mentioned this. The thing about heaven that is most amazing to me is not that there won't be sin in heaven. I can wrap my mind around that. The thing that is the most amazing to me in heaven is that I won't sin. I won't sin anymore. Now, that blows my mind away because I know me. I, 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 know, I know me, right? I've lived, with, I've lived with me. I see my faults. I see my failures. I see my struggles. I know those thoughts that are ungodly. I know those words that are ungodly. I know those emotions that are ungodly. I know the selfishness in my life. And so you're telling me one day that my holiness is going to be per- perfected to the point that I myself will no longer sin? Now, that's what amazes me. And if you are real and honest with yourself, that ought to amaze you as well, that you yourself will no longer sin in God's kingdom. That is glorification. So where justification is positional holiness saved from the penalty of sin, sanctification is progressive holiness where we are saved from the power of sin, glorification is perfect holiness where we are saved from the presence of sin. So sin won't even be in the presence of sin of God's people in the ultimate time of glorification. And we long for that day. So I think the big, um, the big difference that I think individuals get caught up on when we talk about assurance of salvation, our assurance of the believer and eternal security, is the difference between justification and sanctification. That's where a lot of individuals get things twisted. They get positional holiness confused with progressive holiness. They get the removal of the penalty of sin confused with the removal of the power of sin at work in an individual's life. So let's look at verses of Scripture that teach the security of the believer. In other words, security. You can, you can know uh, that individuals that place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the Bible teaches, cannot lose their, their salvation. So uh, we're just going to go through these. Uh, I may comment on, on, on a few of them uh, as we go. Ecclesiastes 3.14. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. Now, salvation comes from the Lord. Whatever soteriological spectrum you, you come to or the way that you view salvation, wh- wh- however you approach that, that topic, uh, you, you've got to agree that um, it is by faith in Christ and faith in Christ alone that we are saved. It's not, it's not works. Um, God initiated salvation. God sought us. Now, we can get into exactly what that means and and how humanity, whether we're talking about monergism or synergism, we can can talk about about those things. But ultimately, we know that, that salvation is from the Lord, and what God does endures forever. It endures forever. Uh, Nothing can be added to it, and nothing can be taken away from it. Once he does it, uh, when he says eternal life, he means eternal life. 
In John 6, 37 through 40, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That's, that's pretty clear. All who come to me, I'll never cast out. Uh, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Um, he will raise them up on the last day, uh, that he will not lose um, anything or anyone that has been given to him. John 10, 27 through 29, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. That's a a very clear verse uh, that those that have been given to to, to Christ through faith in Christ are, are held in the hand of God and there's nobody strong enough to pry open God's hand. You ever been in a house with four kids and one lollipop left? <laughs> let, let me tell you something. When that one gets a hold of it, it's like a pit bull locked in on a chunk of meat. I mean, to try to pry that, that thing out, I don't care who it is. That's the last lollipop. They, they holding on to that. They holding on to it pretty tight. Well, listen, God has a much firmer grip on you than my four-year-old does on the sucker. Nothing can take you out of his hand. Nothing can pry you out. There's nothing. No, who, who's strong enough to, to, to unpry God's hand and to remove you from his hand? He says, I'll hold you in, in, in my right hand. Romans 8, 29 through 30 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those who he justified, he also glorified. This is what's known as the, the golden chain of salvation. And every link is in place. And there is nothing that can break any of those links. If those links are in place, then you can know that once you have been justified, you will be glorified. Romans 8.33 says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. We, the, the enemy, he accu- he's the accuser of the brethren day and night. He stands in, in front of God Almighty and, and he accuses the, the, the brethren. He accuses believers day and night. And we're all guilty of everything it is that he says. But we plead the blood. Because it's not about me, it's about Jesus. Everything the devil says about me is, is probably true. I mean, he's a liar, been a liar from the beginning. But the sin in my life that he wants to draw attention to, God, look at, look at what he's done. Look at what he said. Look at what he's thought. True. But I plead the blood of Christ. It's not by my own meritous works that I'm forgiven. It's solely by what Jesus Christ has done, done for me. You ever watch Matlock? He don't ever lose, do he? Matlock ain't ever lost a case in his life. 
you know, he was a sheriff in a town called Mayberry at one point in time, and then he went to law school. <laughs> and he never lost a case in his life. In fact, he would get the guilty person who, for some reason, always showed up in the courtroom. Like, why are you in the courtroom? Usually the third row. He'd get them, and he'd bring them up, and they'd just put them on trial, and he'd nail them right then and there. You know you did it. Why are you in the courtroom? I never could understand that. We've got a greater defender than Matlock. He ain't ever lost. And those individuals that are guilty, ultimately justice will be served one day. Romans 8, 35 through 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, we got to remember this is being written to believers. And when you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, he's saying nothing can separate you from his love. Your eternity is secure. What if they're not, 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 not living exactly like Scripture calls us to live? Well, we'll talk about that a little bit, but we got to keep coming back to this. Because you got to reconcile some of that with this. Now, we'll, we'll look at that. We'll look at that. But this is pretty emphatically clear that nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Now, again, this is believers he's talking to. Romans eleven twenty nine. 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth and, um, I don't know what, what's going on with that one. I shouldn't be there. Anyways, after the skin's been destroyed, that's, that's a job, that's something else. Okay, anyways, cut out that part. Uh, uh, I didn't copy and paste that part, okay, so as you can tell. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. The, um, for the wage of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. It's irrevocable. It's a gift that, that cannot be taken back. Uh, God doesn't re-gift. He doesn't, he doesn't take what given is to give it back or want it back. Never mind, I, I, want, I want that back. He, he, he doesn't. He doesn't do that. Are y'all missing a page four? Y'all got a page four? I don't got a page four. Where's my page four at? Thank you. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So we see that we have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, and he is the guarantee 
of our inheritance. Philippians 4.3 says, Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So those that have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, your name is written in the book of life. These two ladies that he's referring to in Philippians, it's, it's known as the epistle of joy. Uh, all, it's just a, a, it is a uh, expression of God, uh, Paul's love for, for this, this church. Except you get to the very end and there are these two ladies that got beef in the church. These two ladies got some issues in the church. And they're causing trouble in the church to some degree. And what does he say about these individuals that obviously aren't living as unto the Lord in this situation? Does he say, you better tell them God is removing them from the book of life, or if they don't get their act together, he's going to remove them from the book of life, and they're going to lose their salvation? He says, no, 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 no. I just ask you, true champion, help these women. Help them. Help them get back to that progressive holiness. Help them to progress in their holiness. They haven't lost their positional holiness. Now, they're causing trouble in the church. You don't think God takes that pretty serious? Help them. Come alongside of them and help them to work through that sanctification process. 2 Timothy 1.12 which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. God is guarding it. So who can overpower God? If he's the one that's guarding you and guarding what has been entrusted to you, that gift of eternal life, then who's the one that can take it away? 1 Peter 1, 3-5 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for our salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. There we see it again. God is the one that is doing the guarding. And guess what? This gift of eternal life, this inheritance that you have, it's imperishable, it's undefiled, and it's unfading. It doesn't rust. Jude 1, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. You see that? We're we're kept for Jesus Christ. That, That is a... An emphatic statement uh, that once we are placed in Christ, we are kept for Christ. Jude 24, 25 says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God and Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Now, when it says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory and great joy, we all said that we've sinned, right? We've all sinned. We've all stumbled. So how how is it that he is going to present us blameless? Because, again, we're talking about positional holiness and the ultimate perfected holiness of glorification, that you can't do anything between justification and glorification that puts null and void your glorification. It's important for us to understand 
that it is based solely upon what Jesus Christ has done for our salvation, and it is based solely upon what Christ has done for our glorification. Revelation 3.5, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. We looked at that this Sunday. That's not a threat. That's a promise. Uh, that's not a negative. That's a positive. He's saying, I'll never do it. You can have security in the fact that I'll never blot your name out of the book of life. Now, was the church at Sardis, were, were, they, were they free of concern or did God bring a charge against them? Or was there something that he saw in the church at Sardis that he said, hey, y'all got some issues? Right? They had some issues. But what he's saying is that the, those individuals that have truly placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, uh, he will not blot their name out of the book of life. Now, um, that, that's a one-sided presentation. Let me, and obviously I lean to that so I present more evidence because I think there is more biblical evidence for uh, assurance of salvation than there is that you can lose your salvation. Uh, and so, but... Somewhat be fair, and, and there are more uh, verses of Scripture that individuals that would hold to a position that says you can lose your salvation than the ones that, that I'm giving, okay? Uh, know that there, there are more than, than what I'm presenting to, to you. Uh, but I would say that these texts usually fall in uh, to one of uh, three categories, we see verses like 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 2, Colossians 1, 21 through 23, and Hebrews 3, 12 through 14, where what we've been talking about are verses of Scripture that fall into the category of practical holiness versus positional holiness. In other words, what is being stunted or what, what is being lost is that conformity to the image of, of Christ Jesus. You're stagnant. You're growing. What did Paul say? I wanted to come and talk to you about the deeper things of Christ. I wanted to feed you meat, but you're still you're only drinking milk. Does that mean that they, they, they lost their salvation, or it just means you, you haven't progressed? You haven't been progressing. You haven't devoted yourself. You haven't committed yourself to allowing uh, the work of God in, in your life into a way that you have progressed upon uh, being an infant in Christ Jesus. Some individuals, they've been believers for 50 years, but the truth of the matter is they haven't really been believers for 50 years. They, they've just been a believer for one year 50 times. You know what I'm saying? Right? They, they, you've been a believer for 50 years, but you haven't progressed past the first year. You just repeated that that year 50 times. No progression, no, no growth, because you don't dedicate your thing, yourself to the, to the things of, of the Lord. So there's practical holiness and positional holiness. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 2. Uh, typically, the practical holiness and positional holiness, a lot of times there, there's these if statements. Uh, now I would remind you, brothers of the gospel, I preach to you which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, who's he writing to? It's, it says in, in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 1, he's talking to, to, to his brothers. He's talking to believers. Now, we just went through a whole laundry list of verses and that's not even all the verses that I would put forth to you to say that uh, you have eternal security if you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. 
So these are individuals that are held in the righteous right hand of God whose inheritance is being guarded by God. So when he refers to brothers, these are individuals that I would say from what we just saw, they can't lose their salvation. So this text automatically can't be talking about the loss of salvation. It says, I preached to you which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved. Now notice they're standing upon the gospel that had been preached. They're standing on it. They haven't diverted from that by which you are being saved. Now, remember, when we talk about justification, sanctification, and glorification, you are saved, you're being saved, you will be saved. What is the terminology that is used here in this verse? By which you are being saved. Well, I thought they already were saved. They're brothers in Christ, yes, but they're in the sanctification process of being saved. So this is talking about practical holiness, not positional holiness. It's talking about sanctification. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, there are some individuals that uh, belief is, is just they, had, they, they never truly repented of that. They may have walked an aisle. They may have raised their, their, a hand, uh, but they never truly placed their, their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. There are individuals who that would apply to. Colossians 1, 21 through 23 falls into the same category. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So you're reconciled in Christ Jesus to be presented holy and blameless. But again, could we all say in this moment right now we're blameless? No. So it's talking about a future time that we have been reconciled so that one day we will be presented completely holy and completely blameless, talking about glorification. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So this terminology, stable and steadfast, is used oftentimes in the New Testament, especially by Paul, to speak of an individual that is walking in the Spirit or is walking according to the ways of the Lord. We see in Ephesians, stand firm. Uh, we see in 1 Corinthians, stand firm, be immovable, be steadfast, know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Uh, we see this terminology is used for individuals that is not talking about salvation, it's talking about their sanctification. Hebrews 3, 12 through 14, Hebrews is the book that most individuals will point to that adhere to uh, uh, a theology that says you can lose your salvation. There are five warnings in the book of Hebrews, and it's progressive. They start to drift from the word. They start to become dull to the word. They start to doubt the word, and pretty, pretty soon they're, they're walking away from, from the word. And so there are these warnings that a lot of times individuals will point to and say, see, this is talking about individuals losing their salvation. Now, Hebrews 3, 12 through 14, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Now, again, some of this terminology seems like, man, what it's talking about is it's up to you. It depends to you that if you hold on to, to, to the end and it, it is up to you whether or not that you are saved. But again, we have to go back to is our salvation 
based upon our works and based upon our good deeds and our righteousness. Because to say, well, to persevere to the end means that, that you do all of these works, that equate, and if you don't do those works, then you're not truly going to be saved. Well, now you've just taken and shifted the grace of God to a works-based salvation. So, again, there's positional holiness, and then there is progressive holiness that comes uh, with our, our faith in Christ. A second category of um, typical verses of Scripture that, that fall into individuals saying, yes, the Bible teaches you can lose your salvation, are passages of Scriptures like Luke 8, 9 through 15, uh, specifically verse 13, where they're, they're professing, not possessing believers. Uh, so again, there are individuals who have made professions of faith that aren't truly, truly saved. Uh, there, are, there are individuals that, are, that, that have walked an aisle. There's individuals that have raised a hand. There are individuals that uh, they, were, uh, they regretted their sin. They didn't repent of their sin, and there's a huge difference. To regret your sin, but I've seen some individuals with hot tears coming down their face. And boy, they, 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 they're, they're worried sin's about to catch up to them. They're about to be found out or sin caught up to them and, and, and had found them out. Uh, but then there's no fruit in their life whatsoever. And when things start, the storm starts to dissipate, they're, they're right back doing the same old thing that they've always been doing. I think there's individuals that, that have, uh, professed faith uh, that, that aren't truly in possession of, of faith. Um, it's often been said, I don't know who this originated with, but pastors say, when we get to heaven, we're going to be ultimately surprised by two things, who's not there and who is there. Because there's a lot of people that are whitewashed tombs that up on the outside, well, they're good church-going folk. And then there are other individuals look at him. They ain't never been on a mission trip. He can't even quote John three sixteen. Uh, I mean to tell you, he ain't much of a he ain't much of a believer. And that brother probably gonna have all kinds of crowns because God doesn't judge by the outward appearance; He judges by the heart. In the parable of the, of the soils, we, we see that there's an interesting part of one of the four soils, and that is the one in verse 13 that says, And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, fall away. Now, this idea of not having any root, I would put forth to you, is the concept of abiding in Christ. See, apart from Christ, you can do nothing to be rooted in Christ. See, oftentimes we get so focused. We'll talk about this. I'm jumping the gun a little bit. We talk about, we talk about the, we worry so much more about the fruit than the root. What are you rooted in? We, we want to be fruit inspectors. We always want to look at and compare us with everybody else, and we want to look at their fruit compared to our fruit, and well, I got, we got more fruit than that, so we must be, we must be, what are you rooted in? There's going to be all kinds of people that come to Jesus and say, didn't we do all these miracles in your name? Didn't we do this, this, and that? He's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. You weren't rooted in me. 
see, we need to be more concerned about what we're rooted in. If we're rooted in Christ, the fruit will come naturally. So it says that, but these have no root. So these are uh, individuals that I believe profess, but they don't possess uh, true faith. And then there's the loss of rewards uh, and not salvation. And I think there are several verses, mainly those that are in Hebrews that, that a lot of people will, will look at uh, that, that get them tripped up. And it's more to do with the loss of rewards and not salvation. You know, as believers, we'll stand in front of Jesus in judgment as well. Right? We'll, we'll be in front of the, the Bema seat of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ. And we'll give an account for everything that we did, both good and bad, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll give an account for everything that we've done, good and bad. That's at the Bema seat of Christ. Now, again, positionally, we're holy. We're already forgiven. So we're not talking about for our salvation. It's not whether or not that we've been saved that we stand before the, 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 the Bema seat of Christ. It's that we are saved, and what did you do with that salvation? How did you steward that salvation? And for some, it's going to be like they just escaped through the fire. They won't hear those words, job well done, good and faithful servant, but they haven't lost their salvation. They come into the kingdom that cannot be shaken. Galatians 5, 4 says, you are, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Now, again, you, this is why context is so important. I've isolated this verse, and so when you look at this, oh, you've fallen away from grace. You can fall away from grace. But what he's talking about to the church at Galatia is what they were doing is they were going back to the old sacrificial system. They were going back to the Mosaic law. They were falling away from the grace. He's saying, you, you've fallen away from, from, from grace. You're, you're going away from the grace that you are under, and you're trying to go back to this old sacrificial system of the law. When, when you're under grace, you don't have to do that. Who bewitched you? You started off so good, he would tell them, but, but now you've, you've slipped back into this old way of thinking that, that you need the sacrificial system and you need this Mosaic law to help you in the sanctification process. Listen, the, the, the law is not what sanctifies us. The law is what takes us to the one who sanctifies us. It's the one who takes us to Jesus. The law is the mirror. You look in the mirror and you see you got... You got some junk in your teeth? You don't take the mirror off the wall and pick your teeth with the mirror, do you? No, you, you get the junk out. The mirror is just to show you. The law is to show you what is wrong. Um, for us to be fixed, it's not to take the law and then to fix ourselves. That's only showed us what is wrong. It's to go to Jesus. He's the one who sanctifies us. Uh, Hebrews 6, um, 4 through 6 really should go down to 9 because it, it, it talks about that. He's not talking about salvation. He's talking about the things that accompany salvation. Uh, if you got King James uh, or that belong to salvation. So he's talking about the rewards. He's talking about those things that go along with salvation. He's not talking about salvation in and of itself. Uh, real quickly because I, I want to I get to... Um, I want to get to some of these, these last points. But Hebrews 10, 26 to 29, this, this is one that um, it, it is a tough um, couple verses of Scripture. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. 
but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has, excuse me, outraged the spirit of grace? So if somebody that has placed their faith in Christ Jesus, and I believe Hebrews, there's a lot of debate on this, uh, who is the book of Hebrews written to, who wrote the book of Hebrews uh, what ultimately is the is the main message of Hebrews? There's a lot of debate uh, on that. Uh, I believe it's written to to believers. Uh, obviously, uh, the main point that he's trying to make is that Christ and and the new covenant is better than the the law and the old covenant. Uh, but we see that in these warnings, you, you'll see in the five warnings that in the context that you find those five warnings, uh, the author will typically allude back to the Exodus. And he'll even allude to the fact that only Joshua and Caleb were the ones that made it into the promised land. Now, Moses is known and is mentioned in Hebrews 11 as one of the heroes of faith. But he didn't make it into the promised land. He messed up. He got mad at individuals. And he said, what do we got to do? Make water come from this rock? Now, the big, the big uh, sin was he put himself on the same level as God. He said, what do we have to do? Make water come from the rock? Basically, he equated himself to God. Like him and God were, he was the fourth member of the Trinity. <laughs> I've met a couple people like that. You know, yeah, you know that? that you, you ever met them? They think they're the fourth member of the Trinity? I know a couple people like them. So, he didn't make it into the promised land. Uh-oh, Moses, Aaron, they ain't making it to the promised land. So what's that mean? God did away with them. They're not going to be in heaven one day. Well, who was on the Mount of Transfiguration with Elijah? Uh-oh. In fact, there's a lot of jacked up people that are considered to be heroes of the faith. In fact, there's only one person in all the Bible who was without sin, and that's Jesus. So some of these heroes of the faith that we want to emulate, they're pretty jacked up. You ever read the story of David? That brother committed adultery, tried to cover up the adultery by getting a dude drunk. And then when that didn't work, he just had him killed. That's a man after God's own heart. Uh-oh, hold on, wait a second. Wait a second. There's a difference between positional holiness and progressive sanctifying holiness. Now, I find it interesting in Hebrews 10, 26 to 29, that there is only one other passage in the New Testament that speaks of judgment due to the mistreatment of the blood of the covenant. There's only one other passage. Here we, we see that because you are profaning the sacrifice of, of Jesus Christ and you have profaned the blood of the covenant, that there, that there is going to be judgment that has to come. Verse 27, but a fearful expectation of judgment, a fury fire, a fire that will consume the adversaries. Now, I think the judgment is the beam of seed of Christ. I think the fire is what is, what, what is mentioned in, in 1 Corinthians, that we, we will pass through the fire and we will barely escape for, for those that uh, never grow in their faith and that never uh, live out and produce, produce fruit uh, in accordance with 
what God has called believers to do. And the only other place that we read of this kind of phraseology is in 1 Corinthians 11, 25 through 30. And it's about those brothers in Corinth that were uh, profaning the blood of Christ uh, as they were taking the Lord's Supper. And do you remember what God did to them? What happened to them? Anybody know? Bible trivia. What happened to the brothers in Corinth uh, that were taking uh, the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, profaning the blood of the covenant? You remember what, what God did to them? Come on. I, I'm cheating because I already read. I already know it's on my notes. So here, I'll just tell you. He brought judgment on them. Some of them became weakened, sick, and some of them even died. So the judgment that is, is spoken of here, I don't think it is judgment of you lost your salvation and you're going to be judged at the great white throne of judgment. It's, I'll come to you. You want to make a mockery of the blood of Christ? You want to make a mockery of the name of Christ Jesus? Uh, God will deal with you harshly because he loves you. There is discipline in the Lord. And he will come and he will judge you and he will deal with you. And ultimately, if you don't get your act right, he'll take you out of this world. He'll call you home. And he'll snatch you up. You ever been in Walmart and had to snatch him up? Snatch a kid up? That's what he said. Look, I gave you the first three aisles. We on aisle four and you ain't got your act together. I'm snatching you up. And, and the Lord will snatch you up. Some of you, you're halfway down aisle three. Be careful. He'll snatch you up. Let's look at verses of Scripture that teach the assurance of the believer. So how can you know? The Bible teaches you can't lose your salvation, but how can you personally know? Job 19, 25 through 26 says, For I know that my Redeemer lives. That's where it got cut off. That's where it went. That's the rest of that. Y'all can find it and read it, but there it is. Yeah, what happened there? I'll tell you what. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, he will see the Lord uh, face to face. I don't know where the rest of that went. but Basically, he knows two things. Jesus lives, and I'm going to see him. Now, Job went through all kinds of stuff. Those prosperity preachers, I'd love to hear them preach on Job. That brother Job had some issues, didn't he? He had some problems. He went through some stuff. But he was a righteous man, didn't curse God, never cursed God. He said, I know Jesus lives, and one day I'm going to see him. John 3, 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Have you truly believed in Christ Jesus? Then you're not condemned. There is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. John 5, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. When Jesus says truly, truly, uh, that means, li listen, I'm telling you something that you need, to, you need to write down. You need to make note of this. This is, this is important. I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. You have it. Have you believed in Jesus and the one who sent Jesus? And you have eternal life. Romans 4, 5 through 6. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 8. 
For we know that if the tent, that is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent or in in this life, in this world, we groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that uh, what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. He said that you can't be a believer without the Spirit. And if you are a believer, you have the Spirit. And guess what? That's a guarantee. A guarantee of what? Eternal life. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body than at home with the Lord. Ephesians 2, 5 through 6 says, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's your positional holiness right there. That's where you are right now. You say, I thought I was in Coweta, America. Well, in God's economy, through your faith in Christ Jesus, you are now seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ. That's your positional holiness right there. Philippians 1.6, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He's going to complete it. You're not like one of the books on my, my bedside that I'm four chapters in and then I started another one. He's going to complete it. He's going to complete it. Some of y'all look real guilty like I do on that. 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13, the saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. In other words, when you mess up, he doesn't stop being faithful to his end of the covenant. You may be unfaithful to your end of the covenant, but he, the covenant isn't necessarily established with you. It's established between God the Father and God the Son. And we're the beneficiaries of that covenant. And that covenant will not be broken. 2 Corinthians 4.18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Pretty clear to me. Hebrews 10.14, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So notice, again, positional holiness, progressive holiness. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. You see that? He is sanctified for all times those that are being sanctified. He's justified you and he's sanctifying you. Positional holiness and progressive holiness. If you know somebody who becomes an, uh, a follower of Jesus Christ, they're a new believer, and they want to know, what, what should I read? The very best book that I have found to point somebody to when they become a new follower of Jesus Christ is the book of 1 John. 1 John is, is a fantastic book to point people to uh, right out of the gate. Why? Because 1 John 5.13 
I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. The whole book of 1 John is so that the reader of that can know of the assurance of the believer and the security, the eternal security of the believer. The whole book. And it's a short book. Uh, they can read in about 15, 20 minutes a day and read the whole book and start to develop that holy habit of having 15 to 20 minutes of quiet time each and every day. Because uh, the number one thing a lot of individuals wrestle with is, am I truly saved? A am I saved? I, I prayed that prayer, but man, you know, they walk out of the church and they're thinking, boy, everything's just going to fall right into place. But I gave my life to Jesus. Everything's just going to be perfect. All the problems that I have, they're just going to automatically work themselves out. And when they don't, well, maybe I did something wrong. I, when I stood up and I stepped into the aisle, I did it with my left foot. I should have done it with my right foot. When I, when I came up, I didn't, he, he was talking so fast. I didn't say the exact words he said in the prayer. So I'm, am I really saved? I don't know. Did I really do it right? And they start really wrestling with it. First John clears it all up. The whole book. Is to say, you can know that you know that you know you have eternal life. 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 15. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. This passage of Scripture, I think, is the clearest to show us that there are individuals whose lives don't always reflect God's word, but yet they are truly saved. They won't stand before the great white throne of judgment to be based on their works because they genuinely place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But when they stand before the bema seat of Christ Jesus, when they stand before him to say, what did you do with the salvation that was bestowed upon you? What did you do during that time you were here on the earth as one of my children? What is it that you did? I don't think those individuals will hear, job well done, good and faithful servant. I don't think they're going to enter into God's kingdom with any rewards. But this right here says they do enter into God's kingdom. Now, some people twist that and say, well, shoot, I'm in. I'll say the prayer, and I'll go back, and I'll live my life however I want to live my life. And you know what? I don't care about the rewards. I'm going to get to be in heaven. That's okay, you know. Uh, a shanty in, in heaven still got to be pretty nice, you know what I mean? Like, you may get your mansion, but that's okay. I'll take the mother-in-law suite in the back, you know? Well, I can have heaven and eat my cake too. The Lord says, yeah, that's right, yellow cake with chocolate icing. Thank you. But the Lord says, if, if you're sinning deliberately, you're trying to use grace as a loophole. Paul will address this on a couple of occasions. So should we sin all the more so grace will abound all the more? He said never. Because if you're trying to use Jesus as a loophole, you didn't repent of your sin. You didn't truly give your life to Jesus. You're a professor, not a possessor of faith. 
You raised your hand, you, you walked the aisle, but you never really repented of your sins because what is repentance? Repentance is that military term. I don't know why I try to sit down. I don't like that. I'm walking one way. I recognize that not only is the way I'm walking wrong, I know that the direction that God is calling me to is right. So it's not just, yeah, I'm going the wrong direction, and you just keep walking. Yeah, this ain't good. Well, this is not good. No, repentance is, I repent of this, and I turn to follow my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's a lot of people that, yeah, I'm not living my life right, but they never turn. They never turned and truly repented and gave their life to, to Jesus Christ. And so when we talk about assurance of, uh, of the believer, I think it, it, it has to do with, with fruit, right, that we, we, we are bearing fruit. How do we know that we're followers of Jesus Christ? How do we know that we're truly saved? I believe that if we're rooted in Christ, that we will bear fruit. Look at Matthew 13, 18 through 23. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for those, uh, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself. He doesn't abide in Christ. He's, he's not rooted and truly repented, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Now, as for the one who was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. Now, notice this. Sometimes it's good soil. The seed is germinated. Sometimes it produces a hundredfold of fruit, sometimes 60, sometimes 30. It will produce fruit. But again, that's why we can't compare and say, well, everybody that's saved is going to produce a hundredfold of fruit. And I look at this brother or this sister over here, and I don't see a hundredfold of fruit, so they must not be true believers. It says here clearly some people produce more fruit. Everybody that's truly a believer is going to produce some fruit. Some people just produce a little bit more. And I think there's nothing necessarily special about that person. But God does sometimes use individuals in a unique, unique way. Billy Graham was used in a unique way. It's just, it's just an act of God to use an individual in a unique way. Some people 100-fold, some people 60-fold, some people 30-fold. Now, I also believe that at different times of, the, of our lives, that there are times, there are seasons in our lives, man, we're on fire for the Lord, and we're really producing a lot of fruit, and then sometimes, we, man, we get sidetracked, and we take our focus off of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and we get deterred, and we're not producing as much fruit as maybe we did at one point in time. But our salvation isn't necessarily dependent upon how much fruit we produce, but yet it is an indicator that we truly are rooted in Christ Jesus because fruit will be manifested from those that are truly his children. John 15, 1 through 10 says, I'm the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in 
in me. He says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. From apart from me, you can do nothing. You know why there's a lot of individuals that have truly placed their faith in Christ Jesus, but they're not producing a ton of fruit? I think it's discipleship. There's a lot of people that were never truly discipled. In church today, the number one metric that is used to establish the health and the vitality of a church, how many people got saved and how many people got baptized? Those aren't bad metrics to use. Those aren't bad metrics to use. We use those metrics. But if you're only viewing a church's health by that, you're in trouble. How many... What percentage of those individuals got plugged into some type of discipleship group? Uh-oh. We do a bad job. I don't mean we. I, th I think we do a, a good job, universally speaking. You get out of the baptistry, we hand you the towel. We counted you and figure it out. I hope it works out for you. Why? Because the other numbers aren't that, aren't that elaborate to put in front of people. This brother was struggling, and, and man, now he knows how to rightfully divide the word, and he has a quiet time. How many, how many people have a daily quiet time? Let's count that number. How many people shared the gospel? Not how many people responded positively to the gospel, but how many people in the church this week shared the gospel? Let's count that number. So oftentimes we don't see a lot of fruit being produced because we haven't cultivated that fruit. We haven't truly come alongside and discipled individuals, and not everybody makes himself available to be discipled. Matthew 7, 15 through 20, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inward are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree um, bear good fruit. So uh, if you're rooted in Christ, you, you, will bear, you will bear good fruit because the tree itself is, is good. Now, that's going to look different. Some 100-fold, some 60, some 30. So, in conclusion, salvation is of the Lord. God cannot deny himself. Salvation was completed by Christ. Salvation is an irrevocable gift. Salvation is an unconditional promise. And salvation cannot be gained or lost by our good works. So are there individuals that are truly saved that their lives don't necessarily measure up to what it is that we would say this, this is what a saved person does? Yes. Does some of that have to do with discipleship? A lot of it. Are there some individuals that are professing believers but not possessing believers? Absolutely. There are individuals that would tell you all day, yeah, yeah I, I prayed the prayer. Yeah, but there is no fruit in your life. There's got to be some fruit in a believer's life because a good tree produces good fruit. Now, again, some 100, some 60, some 30-fold. We can't necessarily compare and say, well, let me count uh, all the fruit that is in your life to determine whether or not you've met the standard. That may be your standard, but that's not God's standard. God's standard for salvation is did you repent of your sin and place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? 
Now, I meant to leave much more time for this. What about an individual who has placed their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ and they commit suicide? Are they still saved? When we talk about the perseverance aspect, would that be considered persevering to the, to the end? Did they not persevere to the end, and so therefore did they forfeit the gift of eternal life? Did they, did they lose their, their salvation? I think that's an important question. Suicide has affected a, uh, a lot of individuals. Um, my mom's dad committed suicide. And I can tell you, it leaves a deep scar uh, on families' hearts and, and, and lives. In Scripture, there are seven individuals uh, that I could find uh, and could confirm uh, that have committed suicide. Abimelech, Samson, Saul, Saul's armor-bearer, Ahithophel, Zimri and Judas. Now, some of these are individuals that uh, were professors of faith, but not truly in possession of faith. Um, some of these are individuals that uh, I, I think uh, are God's chosen people that will be uh, that we will see. I, I feel like Samson. Uh, is an individual that uh, is going to be in, in heaven. Uh, Saul, for all of his problems and all of his mistakes, uh, he was a, one of God's chosen people. Uh, now, again, uh, I, I'm not going to be dogmatic on that, but I, I see there are individuals in Scripture that have uh, committed suicide that I believe that they're, they're, they're going to be in heaven. Now, Here's the real question. Was the individual who committed suicide, were they truly a believer in Christ Jesus? Did, did they place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Because it's not so much about the suicide as it is about the individual who placed their trust and faith in Christ Jesus. This, this world can be extremely overwhelming at times for individuals. You got to take into account mental health issues. You got to take into account oftentimes addictions that put us in mind frames and mindsets that aren't always conducive to us being in our, our right mind. One of the things that, you know, the church hasn't always done a great job in is the area of mental health. We haven't always done a great job in, in, in helping individuals that have mental health issues. There are even some that take the approach of don't take medicine. You're not supposed to take medicine. Don't take medicine for any mental health issues. Jesus is going to heal you, and they're wearing an insulin pump. You see the irony of that? When it comes to mental health, don't take nothing. Brother, you got an insulin pump on. What, what? We, we don't hold you and say you wouldn't let anybody come into your community group wearing an insulin pump saying, Take the insulin pump in Jesus' name. You don't need that insulin pump. You're going to do that. But oftentimes somebody that is trying to take some medicine that God has worked through 
individuals' lives to, to, to give to help individuals, we'll say, don't take that. That's a lack of faith. Well, I don't know about that. I think we got to be real careful with that. I think we got to be real careful with that. We, we cutting out all medicine. We need to do a better job of loving our brothers and sisters in Christ and those in the community that suffer with various mental health issues. So you got to take all of that in, into consideration. 1 Kings 19.4 says, But he himself went a day's journey. Um, I'm talking about um, Elijah. He went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And there are individuals that deal with deep, dark depression. This is Elijah. This is one of the prophets of God. He had just called down fire. And now here he is, and he, he's saying, oh, I don't, I don't want to live no more. I'm tired. Boy, I'm tired. Uh, even to the point of life. Jonah. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Now, we might look at it and say, Jonah, that was so silly. It was just a plant that provided you shade, and God took it away. And we may look at other individuals' lives who, who come across something, and it seems earth-shattering to them that we would say, man, why don't you just, it's not that, you, it's going to be okay. But in that moment, man, it is tough, right? I think sometimes we can over-spiritualize things. And life can be hard at times. Jeremiah 20, 14, curse be the day on which I was born, the day when my mother bore me. Let it not be blessed. Well, that's some serious depression, is it not? I wish I would have never been born. I wish I would have never lived. You ever been there? You ever been in that deep, dark recess of depression? Mark 3, 28 through 30, and I, I know we gotta, we got to wrap up. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes, blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. I'd like to think I can be pretty dogmatic on this. I feel like scripture is fairly clear on this. There is only one unforgivable and unpardonable sin. And that is the rejection of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of your life. Is suicide a sin? Absolutely. Absolutely it is. If an individual has placed their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ, truly placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and that's the hard part, right? That's the hard part to know. God looks upon man's hearts. Again, we're going to be surprised on who's there and who's not there. But if an individual had truly placed their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ and then commit suicide, I believe their salvation wasn't dependent upon their suicide. Their salvation was dependent upon whether or not they placed their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ. And we've got to be real careful with that. Because I think there are individuals that can be struggling with that and say, well, I just want to go to heaven, so I guess I'll just, I'll just go to heaven. That is a deception and a lie from the enemy that 
that that is what God wants for for you. Paul said oftentimes, I really wish I was there, but guess what? It's better for, for me and for you to be here at this point in time because God wants to use us. Why? Because in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, even in those moments of deep, dark, recessed depression, we have the comfort of God. Guess what we can do and bestow upon other individuals when they find themselves in that deep, dark recession of depression. We can take the same comfort that had been given to us by God. We can come alongside of them and point them to Jesus. And maybe that individual doesn't truly know Jesus. And that comfort that brought you out of those deep, dark recessions of depression can now help them to see Christ and place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and bring them out of it as well. So we need to run the race that God has set before us. And we need to do everything that we possibly can to, to love our brothers and sisters in Christ and be there for our brothers and sisters in Christ. But we also need to understand that salvation is dependent upon faith in Christ and faith in Christ alone. And if that has to deal with the justification aspect, it deals with the sanctification aspect and it deals with the glorification aspect as well. It's not just the way we get into the door and then it's all up to us from that point forward. It is the basis between which we are saved, are being saved, and will be saved. It's all about Christ, always has been and always will be. And you can know, you can rest assured and complete assurance that if you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, Regardless of whether you're bearing a hundredfold of fruit, 60-fold of fruit, or 30-fold of fruit, he who began a good work in you will see it through to completion. You can know that you know that you know. And it's not based on anything you've done, but it's based on everything that he has done. He holds you in his righteous right hand, and that dirty devil can't pull you out. You belong to him. Amen.